Welcome to Wellness Spring. I am your host, Beverly Holt, health and well-being expert with more than four decades of experience in all aspects of wellness. Today, my esteemed guest is Dr. Andy Zammer, a triple qualified consultant psychiatrist, founder of the London Psychiatry Centre, and recipient of the Gaskell Gold Medal and Prize from the Royal College of Psychiatrists. Born in Egypt to a diverse cultural background, Dr. Zama is a world-renowned expert in treating affective disorders, pioneering precision medicine and mitochondrial treatment. With the wealth of experience, he has held NHS consultant posts, contributed to NICE guidelines, and introduce innovative technologies to the UK. A multilingual expert, Dr. Zammer is committed to advancing mental health globally. Welcome, Andy, to Wellness Spring. I am so grateful to our communal friend, Ilona Munslow, for introducing us. Thank you very much. I'm very grateful for you having me. It's an absolute pleasure. So. Could you please share your journey from my diverse cultural background in Egypt to becoming a triple qualified consultant psychiatrist? Okay, I, um, I'm Greek Lebanese, uh, born in Egypt and uh, um, triple national. Um, and I uh, grew up uh, in a multilingual home um, where we spoke Greek, French, uh, Egyptian classical Arabic came in, uh, English came in, Italian was there. So we we were very exposed. We also were exposed to uh, a massive background of religious uh, upbringing, whereby we studied the New Testament, the Old Testament, and the Quran at school. Uh, wow. So we were. Um, fortunate enough to be exposed to just about everything. Um, and I did my scholar education in French and classical Arabic and uh, my medical degree in English. That was in Cairo. And then restless as one is, one wanted to open more horizons. So I took requalification primary medical degree from the UK and the US. And I settled in the UK instead of the US. Um, and uh, then I specialized in psychiatry and uh, I um, thought, you know, restless as one is, that it's time to go beyond what is there. Because what is there, I'm afraid I don't see it as good enough for patients. And were either of you parents psychiatrists or no, in the medical no. field? No. I was an aberration. I can't come from a family of lawyers that I went into medicine and it was an accident that I went into psychiatry. Both of them were accidents. But you don't plan, I didn't plan it. I mean, I didn't see myself. Yeah. It, you just find yourself doing things and then you progress with them. So right. I tell my kids that till today, I don't know what I want to do. When they ask me, they don't know what they want to do. <laughs> well, you've certainly done a lot in your lifespan. Um, I'll just ask you now, who or what inspired you to start the London Psychiatric Clinic? At the London Psychiatry Centre, 
Um, it was basically being restricted. So when you want to expand your horizons beyond what is there, and you work in an organization, there are always restrictions. So I wanted to set up a cutting edge center. I wanted to bring new technologies in the country. You couldn't do that working for any clinic hospital for anybody. Uh, they have their systems, their priorities. And uh, I decided the best thing to do is to set something myself up and shape it. And uh, I think we've gone some way, not, a, not to the, where I wanted to be, but we brought in new technologies. We um, had them approved in the UK. Um, we were five years before any other clinic um, doing it. Uh, we published our data. We're the only center that would publish its results in peer-reviewed journals that I'm aware of, at least in the UK. Um, in the private sector, certainly. And the NHS, probably one or two centers do that. Uh, at least for RTMS, for magnetic stimulation, there's only one center that did that, and that was Northampton. Wow. Do you so want to explain to us about these methods? Okay. Um, now, when I was treating patients uh, with high-dose thyroid hormones, which are in guidelines to treat resistant mood disorders, and I hit a brick wall, right because still they didn't get better. So they're taking four or five drugs and still not getting better. And I remember at the time I told one of my patients, uh, look, we're, we're the only option is ECT. And she just burst out in tears. And um, that uh, you know, was very upsetting because either they have ECT or they don't get better. The two choices are not great. And um, at the time, yeah, I was just looking at other options and uh, accidentally a colleague of mine Rafael Elba rings me and tells me have you heard of RTMS I said yes I have he said would you like to set up a unit and I said absolutely I asked him has it been approved in Europe uh, licensed as a medical device he said just at the beginning of this year that was five months later and I said fine let's get it uh, a few months later we just started our first unit and uh Basically, what I found uh, from the studies we read that th this treatment was uh, had a recovery rate of about 20-30%, which is not great, but still is better than 2% with antidepressants. Um, or with bipolars, 10% at one year. Uh, sorry, yeah, at two years, 10% uh, bipolars are well. Most of them are sick again. So... Uh, with this treatment, um, we started using it for non-bipolars without thyroid, for bipolars with thyroid. And then we found that the recovery rates are extremely high. Um, and when people are well, they stay, stay well for a very long time. Uh, so we published data on 96.4% uh, of patients remaining well two years down the line in a cohort, another cohort with 95% of patients remaining well at three years, that's unheard of. And the reason why this happens is the, we put a video on our website, mood disorders, anxiety disorders, all psychiatric disorders are brain diseases. They start with periods of instability or periods of 
disturbances. And then the nerve cells start to malfunction. And then the nerve cells eventually break down and they atrophy, basically. And the end station is dementias. So the brain atrophy becomes so severe that they end up with dementia. So when you look at OCD, for example, the dementia risk is almost 500%. When you look at bipolar in a study in Taiwan, longitudinal following up bipolars over a long time, it was almost 800%. With depression, it's 200%. Um, other larger studies for bipolar found a 289% chance of dementia, which is very high. So unless you treat the conditions with the aim to stop the disease progression and the brain atrophy, you're doing nothing. You're doing absolutely nothing. We need to take a long-term view, and that's how I saw it. And um, basically, that's what we've done. And uh, we published our data. We published a model for mood disorders. Um, and the video explains it, how it works. Or do you want me to explain it? That's okay. Um, I'm sure people can watch the video and um, listen um, because you you covered a lot there and I actually got shivers when you mentioned ECT because I started my career as a psychiatric nurse and back in those days I can remember that was standard treatment for many disorders and when you know I was horrified then and I'm even more horrified now just thinking what the patients had to go through and you know it saves um, lives it saves yeah. lives but uh, before I developed the RTMS unit in mood, resistant mood disorders, you have no option but ECT. So I used to use it a lot and people used to get better, but it used to leave them with cognitive deficits. And sometimes they feel it's traumatic, they're upset, relatives are upset. Uh, since I brought RTMS in, in the past 12 years, we've, we've had to use ECT about three or four times in the 12 years. Uh, again, to save lives, because you cannot leave the patient die. You have to do something. And the patient weighs the pros and cons, and then they decide. But you're right. It's not a gentle treatment. Yeah, and, um, you know, there, I've seen it like a revolving door because they would get better for a short while, and then before you know it, they're back in again. They're but from the right. results... The results you were saying with the RMT, that's phenomenal, you know, to be well for three years and so forth. That's fantastic. And, um, you know, you mentioned depression as well. And you mentioned you got children. And I know that like the rate of suicide has um, risen globally. And like with depression and anxiety and stress and stress even in young children for no known reason. Um, I'm not sure what it's like in UK because I didn't have time to research the stats. Yeah. So what do you do and why do you think, because from what you were saying, what I understood, you're getting at the root cause, not just putting a band-aid and treating a symptom. So with depression and anxiety, with the, especially with young people, um, what would be your main form of treatment? Let me explain. Um, 
as I said, psychiatric disease as a rule is a natural progression of genetic aberrations. And they end up eventually with brain atrophy. But the starting point tends to be uh, an adverse childhood event or adverse events in adulthood. So what happens is, and, and I'll tell you why I think the, the incidence of suicides and, and mental health problem is rising. The answer is very simple, pollution, diesel pollution in particular. So if you read about diesel pollution and mental health visits, you will see that if you cut the diesel pollution by 10% or so, you cut the mental health visits by 38%. So wow. it makes a huge difference. And what's happening now, because everywhere is so polluted, that it directly affects the nerve cells amongst other cells, the respiratory system, the heart. Um, and what happens is when you look about what we call mitochondrial dysfunction, Mitochondria are the basic unit of the cell, tiny little organelle, they call it, which produces energy for the cell to function. If the mitochondria are hit, the cells malfunction. If they malfunction, disease signs start to appear. So when you look at schizophrenia, bipolar disorders, all these conditions have a common feature, which is mitochondrial dysfunction. Diesel pollution will hit that. Childhood trauma will hit that because what childhood trauma does, it increases the stress hormones, particularly cortisol, and cortisol hits the mitochondria as well. So what happens that mitochondria start to malfunction, and depending on the genes that we have, a specific disease becomes expressed. So it's an interaction between the environment, the upbringing, and the genetics. And the net result is depending on our predisposition. So what we thought of doing is actually treating the mitochondria, at least in mood disorders. And we went backwards. So we started by looking at why these bipolars get better on high doses of thyroid hormone that you and I would explode if we take. So there had to be something different about these people. And we were treating with outdoors thyroid. Then we went backwards and looked at their genes. And there we found a significant number of mutations to the point whereby when I see a patient, I tell them, I know how your genes will look like. We test them and they're spot on. And these mutations involve an, an, the protein transporters or the enzymes which either transport thyroid hormone into the brain or activate thyroid hormone once, in, once it's inside the brain. And what happens then is if you don't have enough mitochondria, the process of what we call neuroplasticity, which is the nerve cell growth and repair, becomes damaged. When this happens, the diseases become more severe and harder to treat. Because traditionally, in medicine, you hear the story of neurotransmitters and receptors. These yeah. things work on the connections between the nerve cells. But if 
the nerve cells atrophy and the connection widens. They fail to work properly. And that's what happens to these people. So we try and reestablish connections through neuroplasticity with high dose thyroid hormone, it creates new mitochondria and the RTMS induces neuroplasticity and the mitochondria enhance the neuroplasticity. So any insult to the brain, whether it's physical, radiation, trauma, stress, any insult to the brain will result in an impairment of mitochondrial function and the neuroplasticity gets hit and then we get sick. It's a very simple model, but in my opinion, at least, it makes a lot of sense and that's what we published. So what we're doing now is we identified the genes and we're working on developing a test whereby we can identify people at risk of that and intervene at a young age to treat trauma event or intervene socially in trauma events in order to abort the course of the disease. Or, wow, that is incredible. I would love to see that someday yeah. uh, because th these are the only genetics so far, it's a small study, but the only genetics that make sense because th there was a, um, a large, a number of large studies they call GWAS, Genetic Wide Association Studies, which tried to look into the genes. It was funded by Big Pharma and they tried to find any genes for any disorder. They found nothing. The problem is that they went blindly looking for something that will explain a disease model and then a treatment will come from that. It's better to start backwards, whereby you see a treatment that works. And then you go backwards from there. You, you try and understand why it works. And that's what we've done. And uh, now our study is being replicated at King's College London. And if the results are positive, then we're going to go the whole hog to produce a test to have it approved. And it would take about a week to give you an idea of what they call bipolar disorders. Um, it's the commonest psychiatric disorder by far by far, it right. afflicts up to 5% of the population. Schizophrenia is one. It's a spectrum of conditions, all of them deadly, all of them disabling. And the main cause of death is heart attacks, not suicide and strokes, sorry, strokes and then heart attacks. So one in 20 people will have it. More than 52% of those in primary care diagnosed with depression are actually bipolar spectrum. And by default, these will deteriorate with treatments. CBT will make them worse. Antidepressants will make them worse. By default, they'll move to secondary care, psychiatry. So you would expect right. that psychiatrists had between 80 to 100% of their depressed patients would be bipolar. And that's where we fail. We have no means to detect it. We have no means to treat it either, because what the pharma company did, it's a chronic disease, as I said, they break it down into episodes. You're depressed, you take this drug. You're manic, you take that drug. You're neither nor, but ill, there's nothing. Yeah, mm. so you can't break down a chronic disease into episodes. And the, way they've done, the reason why they've done that is that you cannot run clinical trials on chronic diseases. You need longitudinal studies, years. 
Right. There's no way you're going to sell any drug if a drug yeah. company runs a, a clinical trial for three years to see whether it alters disease progression or not. It's not going to sell anything. It's not going to happen. So they were forced to break it down into episodes, to treat episodes. But the inter-episodal period, they are very sick in that stage. In fact, the commonest form of this bipolar, the bipolar disorder, we call it subthreshold or unspecified, has no treatment apart from what we do. Not a single study was done and found positive. Only one study in the world was done in Spain by a colleague called Gariga, and it failed to give you any results. It was similar to placebo. So it is sad to see that this is the state of affairs. It takes a psychiatrist in England an average of 13 years to figure it out. They get it wrong in 85% of the cases. And I'm so cynical that I say, if you had a circus with chimpanzees, you would not allow the chimpanzee to get the act wrong 85% of the time for 13 years. Wow. It is so bad that you wouldn't go to a lawyer who gets things wrong 85% for 13 years. It's just a, not a standard. It's not a criticism of the doctors. It's a criticism of the way we look for it. We have no tests. The training is defective. People are brainwashed into giving antidepressants automatically without thinking. You know, you're depressed, here's an antidepressant. And the best way to fool a doctor is to use the word anti and a disease after it. So if you have anti-COVID, that's it. Without thinking, they're going to give it. If you have anti-anxiety, without thinking, it's going to go. Antidepressant, without thinking, it's going to go. And that's what I <laughs> foresee. Yeah. That's why I wanted to do something different right and what would be your future plans for it to educate all the doctors i know you teach as well in the hospitals the medical hospitals is there any way you can change the teaching of the doctors for example i think the best way to do it is you cannot change things that are established uh you you, you meet a lot of resistance i do meet a lot of resistance yeah I think the best way to do it is to give them a test mm -hmm. whereby if you test positive for COVID, we cannot say it's not COVID if you yeah. see it. Yeah. So if you give them a test and they use it and it gives results and I want the test to be approved for that, we need to raise investment and all these things. And it will take time. I would say about three years before we have right. something concrete. And that's what I want to leave before I depart from this earth. If I give them a test, problem will be solved. That test will not allow us only to treat those who are sick, but would allow us to look at their relatives and intervene early before they get sick. Right. As I said, our biggest enemy is air pollution because that will cause damage that mm. we cannot control. We yeah. just can't do anything. Even if you're in the countryside, you're not protected. If you're by the sea, you have the ships. If you're in the countryside, you have the motorways and agricultural industry and the planes. No matter what yeah. you do, we're not protected. Yeah, that's true. Everywhere you live, even if you think you're living in fresh air, you've got the planes flying over you and so on. Ships, so we were on roads in summer, the smell of the ships, what they left, oh. big cruise liners. 
yeah. uh, in a small port and they stay there with the engines running to yeah. keep the power running in the ship. It, it's just stunning. <laughs> I don't know yeah. where we're heading. There's actually a World Soil and Water Day today and a lot of the problem globally is, um, you know, pollution to the environment and not using the best fertilizers and then using pesticides and all the other stuff that you just mentioned can pollute the land as well. And um, yeah, and what are your thoughts on, because you mentioned, you know, it, it could be our environment and our upbringing um, because there's a lot of people will say that with our upbringing, because for years, in the Western world anyway, we were told, be quiet, big girls, big boys, don't cry, shh, don't speak, the adults are there. And you suppress everything and you suppress in your emotions. And it's very traumatic for a young person to keep suppressing your thoughts. And a lot of um, psychiatrists I've spoken to recently, they, they've said that, um, you know, by suppressing your thoughts, when something happens later on in life, it can trigger all the thoughts from childhood and you can go into, you know, crisis, breakdown, whatever you want to call it. Let me um, explain something. Uh, there's a fascinating study called the ACE study, A-C-E. Yeah. First childhood events. That was conducted in the US and replicated in the UK. They looked at 17,000 people, adults, and they looked yeah. at negative outcomes, such as disease, mental and physical, early yeah. death, divorce, unemployment. And they went back into the histories of these people who had those, and they compared them to those who didn't have those. They found that there are certain things that featured in these people's lives that seem to model how we're gonna grow. Mm -hmm. The things that they found were abuse, physical, sexual, psychological, neglect, physical, emotional, um, parental use of substances, alcohol and drugs, parental incarceration in prison, witnessing physical violence at home, typically against the mother, and separation or divorce, but not parental death. Oh, that's interesting. And they found that these things are associated with adverse outcomes in adulthood. And they called it the adverse childhood events, and they produced the pyramids. You can check on the CDC website and Wikipedia. Came okay. up with a pyramid with early death at the end of it. So what happens is that a child is exposed to these things, and they start to malfunction. Then, as they grow into adolescence, they're already not adjusted at school. They may experiment with drugs, smoking, alcohol, whatever. Then disease comes in. Then they mm. have big problems in relationships, and then they end up 
unemployed or if not unemployed, but they end up with early death because of the presence of these diseases, whether it's mental, because mental disorders cut longevity by 10 to 20 years, or um, things in, in, in response to alcohol or drug use, um, which happens from a young age and then they grow with the deficits that these things cause. So uh, does that explain it? Yes, it does. Thank you. Um, yeah, because there's a lot of things that happen in our childhood, which when we're grown up, we would think are normal, but it's not until adulthood that we realise, you know, how they've affected us. Yeah, but the, the key is that talking about traumatic events was found to make them worse, not better. Yeah. So, yeah. and that's what the brain does. It tries to protect us from it by shutting them down. And when you're exposed to new trauma, it are, it may bring up the whole lot. Yeah. yeah. So talking about it doesn't necessarily treat it. And that's why I'm saying we have to identify those at risk. And then we search for post-traumatic stress disorder. And then we treat. Now, my problem is the concept of post-traumatic stress disorder. As the name says, it is post yes not intra right yeah so yeah. if you are in trauma treating it may not be very effective you have to intervene socially to alter the course of what's happening at home say physical violence drugs drug and alcohol use you know that kind of thing you have to intervene physically <laughs> But, um, and when you look at all the treatments, it's for post-traumatic stress disorder. They're not for intra-traumatic. And I have to be honest, it's rare that you see people with post. You see mostly people in it. And that's when it's harder to treat. We treat that with RTMS effectively. It works very well because it rewires the brain. Right. It doesn't rely on the patient having to slowly work through that it does it intensively so it stimulates pathways 150,000 times in a few weeks it's as if you have 150,000 positive thoughts in a few weeks does that make sense but yeah so totally understand and with post-traumatic stress um you know there's so many wars, wars going on in the world at the moment. So there's lots of countries, you know, lots of experiences and natural disasters that would lead people into post-traumatic stress as well. Can I uh, shock you a bit? And okay. if you allow me to share my screen on one study, uh, okay. that changed the way I work completely. Um, I was also going to say to you because I was born in Wales. Yeah. And Wales of of the last two decades have had the highest suicide rate in the whole of Europe. And now the journalists don't even advertise it. And it's on all backgrounds. Um there are many so they... factors to that. And I think the the also the adequacy of mental health services is extremely poor. May I share mm. something? Sure. In terms of yes. post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, that was a fascinating study. 
actually, no, that's... So that was done in 2005. They looked at 3,000 adults, give or take. Do you see where I put the cursor? Yeah. They yeah. sent them questionnaires for PTSD. Yeah. And they looked at the scores. And then they had about 1,500 responded, which is what you expect. But 832 had PTSD, which is huge. Or symptoms. But then they did something which I found was amazing. Here, I'll make it bigger. They looked at the type of the trauma and the score. Wow. And the highest two are these two here, this one, 11.3 which is physical or sexual abuse of a child or sexual abuse of an adult, okay? Yeah. And the second one is physical abuse of an adult at 7.7. .7. And the third yeah. was robbery. Yeah. And relationship problems. Affairs, divorce, conflict at home. And the fourth, the fifth, was problems with study work. Having problems at work. Or wow. Look where war is. Ah, oh, my God, I can't believe that. Look where disaster is. Wow. So, so small. I'm also surprised, you know, because um, the domestic violence is huge globally and lots of women are being murdered lots of them are not being reported either and um that's quite low as well murder or suicide of a loved one 3.8 yeah do you see what i'm saying yeah that completely so... changed the way i practice because right. civilian settings is where your refuge is. Your family is your refuge. Your work is your refuge. At war, you thank your lucky stars you survived. But mm. in this one, you don't expect that to happen. But it happens. And when it happens, it is more devastating than being exposed to a volcano. So when I see people, I ask them about their relationships. I ask them about problems at work, problems at home. And if there are any, I measure using scales whether there is PTSD or not, and I treat. And it is important to treat that because the simplest is strokes increase by 700%, uh, fatal infections increase by 200%, heart attacks, cardiac arrest increases by 300% with PTSD. Wow. So you, it's a physical condition which kills yeah, um, not the mental. Yeah, yeah. It, it yeah. kills for the physical condition. But that kind of, that study, when I saw it in 2005, it completely changed the way I think. Wow. I'm not surprised, and thank goodness it did, to have um, people like you that are going to be changing our world for the better. So, thank you. Um, pleasure. In your extensive career, 
Um, what have been some of the memorable cases or success stories, because I know you can't give clients name, in treating resistance and difficult to treat cases? Um, I, I see difficult cases by definition. So I see very, very difficult cases by definition. I see end of the line cases. Sometimes I get right. to hospital saying nothing can be done. But the most memorable one I'll never forget is a patient who presented with seizure-like activity whenever she was stressed. And she was having psychotherapy and sedatives and God knows what. But I thought, let's study it. So I had her wired to an electrocephalogram and um, something that monitors the uh, diaphragm and the heart rate and the blood pressure and all these things. And what we noted is that the blood pressure would go through the roof and with it, the diaphragm would contract at one contraction per second, one hertz per second. At the beginning, they were thinking it is a, what they call a conversion disorder, whereby you're upset, you your body responds funnily, and you need psychotherapy. And uh, what we found is that there's no way your body can do one contraction a second of the diaphragm continuously for 10 minutes, five minutes. And her body would tilt to one side, and she would go red, blood pressure would be through the roof. So... It turns out to be hypertension, high blood pressure, which had damaged parts of the brain. And whenever the blood pressure would go through the roof, these problems would appear. So her treatment was very simple. It was a drug called amlodipine, 10 milligrams. I can't remember how many milligrams, but it was amlodipine. That was in the 90s I saw this case. So what I'm trying to say is that if things don't make sense, don't call them psychiatric. Try and study them. Because um, whilst the brain has a massive impact, in this particular case, the impact was physical. And this person from a totally disabled person just traveled the world on a motorbike, retired, was completely well for years, just with the high blood pressure pill. It's not my field, but... Yeah, and I solved it. <laughs> so, um, but um, so that's a case I'll never forget because, again, as far as I'm concerned, you consider yourself to be always wrong until your patient recovers. So everything you do is wrong until the right. patient recovers, and you're constantly questioning yourself and questioning what you do. You question the medication, for example, with antidepressants, mm -hmm. have a recovery rate of two point seven percent at one year. And they increase death rate by 33%. So you question that. You just don't accept it as the norm. Um, and I guess that answers the question. It's something memorable which changed the way I think. Yeah, I, I totally understand because I've had a few friends who've experienced physical imbalances with their bloods or different things that made them appear that they're suffering from a mental disorder and thankfully then they had the right um switched on care to find out that it was a physical and not um 
a mental imbalance so they could be treated appropriately. And we so, cannot work without our colleagues. So my view is, yeah. you'll see on my on our website, we work with physicians uh, yeah. full times because they're so interlinked. We cannot say, I'm a psychiatrist, I'll see the patient myself. No, we yeah. have to invite other people to see our patients too, for many reasons, which I highlight on our website. Yeah, and I... Um... That's what I love about your work because you work holistically. And I also notice on your website that you've got some dietitians on board as well, nutritionalists. Yeah. And I was keen to know your thoughts on holistic therapies because you um, mentioned breath work at some stage and mindfulness meditations and what other things because at one stage I was working at Sydney private clinic in um, Australia and I was invited to do an ex not an experiment we did a trial with some of the psychiatrists with aromatherapy oils using the happy oils to try and lift their moods using lavender wheat pillows and different things like that and for years I've taught meditation to help the clients relax and also um, breath work to teach them instead of panicking you know hyperventilating to calm down so I was wondering whether you include any holistic therapies in your practice. Let me explain anything that would reduce arousal counts as a positive treatment. Right. Arousal is our biggest enemy. So what happens is we are exposed to stress, we become more aroused. We become more aroused, we start to malfunction more. We have to use anything and everything to reduce arousal, from exercise to aromatherapy to yoga to uh, sedation. We just have to use anything to reduce arousal. I mean, I was stunned um, and talking about aromatherapy. We had a boy with autism when I was a trainee years ago, and they gave him an antipsychotic called risperidone. And the poor boy developed what called neuroleptic malignant syndrome. It's a physical, it's a medical condition which has a death rate of up to 40%, whereby the way the nervous system regulates the bodily function fails. Uh, and um, we stop the treatment, it gets better. You start with a tiny dose, he gets it again. And I remember uh, my trainer, was a, he passed away now, Derek Steinberg, his name is, very wise man. He said, let's just reduce arousal. And he got aromatherapy in. And the boy calmed down, as you say. And we reintroduced mm. the drug. He was fine. So, and I read later on that neuroleptic malignant syndrome occurs in highly aroused people. Wow. So even physical disease, the more aroused you are, the worse off you are. So I welcome any intervention that would reduce arousal. And when I tell people to exercise, I tell them aerobic sustain, not high intensity training when they're psychiatrically unwell. Because high-intensity mm. training arouses them more. The gym arouses them more. So I want them to go for a long walk in a park, yeah. quiet place. So we need to reduce arousal in any possible way. So I welcome 
that is an intervention. Yeah, that's wonderful to hear because just being in nature is so healing and everything that you mentioned. And um, I've been teaching people to nasal breathe and keep their mouth shut because um, when you nasal breathe, you're working on your parasympathetic nerves and that calms everything down. And if your mouth breathing all day, as you probably know, it stimulates your autonomic nervous system and it's like having prolonged fight and flight. So, you know, you're already hyped up and then you won't sleep and so forth. Um, because you've got a busy scent and you do so many things, what advice would you give to a new psychiatrist starting out or someone who's thinking of studying psychiatry? I would tell them always question what you see. It's not perfection. The methods of diagnosis are still behind. It's the only branch of medicine where you have no tests. You rely on opinions. Uh, number one, you, you have tests, but nobody uses them. You have questionnaires, but nobody uses them. So always question what you see, what you learn. Always read beyond what they tell you to read. And do not trust the word effective, efficacious, safe, because, and responded to treatment. You need to get your patient well with no symptoms at all. You don't say they responded to treatment, you send them home sick still. So you always question the treatments, the diagnosis, and you're always wrong until your patient recovers. That's what I would advise. That's wonderful advice. And because we're living in a multicultural world, and I know you're multilingual, can you share your insights into your multilingual practice and how language diversity impacts patient care and consultation? Um, religion and language, both of them, not one. Um, so I, I, I can do consultations in Italian or French or English or classical Arabic or Egyptian or, you know, it makes people more comfortable. They talk more freely. There are words which you can never translate. But I remember a case of a refugee uh, from Somalia, Muslim, and they were deemed to be psychotic and they were given antipsychotic injections. And the story goes, I went to their house. Now Swahili has similarities to Arabic, but not how you can understand some words, not all of it. So we're going through interpreters. But the way I thought I would open the dialogue is I walked in the house and I asked if they have a copy of the Quran. They got it. They put it in front of me. And I say, does the patient read the Quran? They said, no. I said, does the patient pray? They said, no. And I asked her to tell me the story of what happened and what turns out to be these hallucinations that we're talking about. Uh, in Somalia in 1991, the state disintegrated and the whole place became very violent and militias were here and there everywhere. But they broke into her house, they killed her husband, they attacked oh. her and then they left. Those hallucinations were not psychotic. She was re-hearing what happened and witnessing it in her eyes. 
and that's PTSD, to which antipsychotics mm. by injection will do nothing. Wow. So to rethink the whole treatment. And it was the trust I gained was via the Quran. I'm Christian, I'm not Muslim, but yeah, it makes sense to make the patient feel at ease with cultural or lingual ability. Yeah. Well, that's a um, very good tip because, um, you know, Brian and I have lived in many countries and, you know, a very good Scottish friend of mine who's actually 104, who's also lived in many countries, he said, you can't live in a country until you get to know their culture and you can't expect to change people, you know, and you have to know their culture so you can speak on the same wavelengths yeah. and understand them. Yeah. And just before we close, I always ask my guests, if there was one thing you could do to change the world, what would it be? So many things you would want to do. I think I can talk about what I can do rather than what I wish I could do. Okay. So what I can do is leave them a test to reduce the burden of disease for many years to come. That's what I would do. Whether it will change the world, I don't know, but it will reduce the suffering. Exactly. And I don't know how I'll do it. Well, I think change starts with us and it's one step at a time. So you're already making plans to do the test. So, you know, there's hope for our future. So I just want to thank you for all you are and all you do. And thank you for giving up your precious time. And where's the best way for people to contact you? Do they have to have a doctor's referral or can they contact um, you directly? They can contact us directly. They can call the centre or write to info at psychiatrycentre.co.uk. There's an email. So they can contact us through there. That's wonderful. And I'll put it all with the show notes. So thank you very much for your words of wisdom. Thank you very much, Beverly. It's been a pleasure meeting you. Thank, thank you. you.